It's early fall in Leightonville. The air is getting colder and the nights are getting longer. Pretty soon, the rainy season will begin. And here in my flimsy tent, I'll be no better than Jeff's trimmers suffering out on that hill in the rain. Plus, after spending a whole summer here, I gotta say, I'm really feeling ready to move on from this place. I might not be working on a pot farm, but I'm starting to glimpse what it must feel like to be trapped in the woods for months on end. The time to finish this investigation is now. But there are still some key questions that remain unanswered. First, there's Jesse. What role did he really play in this crime? So, Zach, who's organizing this entire plan to go up there? It was between me and uh, Jesse. He was kind of pumping everything up. There's absolutely nothing that indicates I had anything to do with it but the broken lives of Zach Wooster. I'm also confused about Amanda. Jesse thinks she was in on it. She provided a vehicle to aid in a bet a felony robbery that ended in a homicide. Then there's Cricket. Did you stab Jeff? No, but I confessed to it. I also need an answer to Jeff's father's question about why the prosecution settled for manslaughter instead of charging Cricket and Michael Kane with murder. I think I would have got a better sense of closure had they got a proper sentence. Two main murderers should have got life without parole. At this point, there's only one person I can think of who can help me answer these questions. Okay, we're about to call Matt Krosky. Hello? Sam, can you hear me okay? Yeah, totally. Okay, ready when you are. I'm Sam Anderson, and this is the Emerald Triangle. Just as one of those people that uh, any which way that he can to better himself, he will at any expense. The surveillance system at the cottages shows my timeline exactly, and the police lose it. Kane said this is for selling bad LSD. This is for selling bad LSD? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm still not the guy that killed him, even though I am in here for voluntary manslaughter. You are never going to find out what the fuck happened on that mountain. Chapter 9. What the fuck happened on that mountain. So tell me more about what you and your other investigators kind of think as the narrative of what happened to Jeff. Any of those details, you know, I'm very curious to hear all of it. I'm on the phone with Matt Krosky, who used to work for the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department. He was the lead investigator on the Settler case. Last time we spoke, Krosky talked about how Zach turned himself in and gave them the names of the other suspects. Now, I want to know what he thought happened on the hill that night. But, you know, there's Zach out in the parking lot of... The wheels, bar, he's recruiting people. Zach described the group getting their weapons. They loaded up and headed out to go up to Jeff's property. I remember Zach describing reaching the top of the hill with the group. The group, according to Krosky, includes Zach, Michael Kane, Jesse Wells, Cricket, and Giggles, whose real name is Gary Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald's the first one to 
I think he bangs on the engine room or, or just hollers out. The engine room is another name for the shack where Jeff Settler, Amanda, and her kid were sleeping that night. From Settler's perspective, there's the reluctance to open the door. Amanda's like, oh, it's just giggles. It's just our friend. And, you know, Amanda opens the door and steps outside. Do you think that there is any chance that she knew what was going on? Like, how do you know that she was not with the robbers? The fact that she walks out of the engine room, leaves her child unattended in a room where a guy's about to get attacked, that to me was a large flag saying, no, she's not in on this. But reading through the court records, I knew that Amanda did more than just open the door for the attackers. After the murder, she went on the run with Zach, driving around Northern California in her car. She even dumped her cell phone at Zach's request. I did get in touch with Amanda, but she declined to be interviewed for this story. But there's something else to consider. A history of women being exploited and abused in the Emerald Triangle. I've met more than one female trimmer who explained to me that in the hills, they're always the minority. And too often, men try to manipulate and take advantage of them. Amanda was just 23, a young mother trying to keep herself and her kids safe. So it's possible she did what she did out of pure survival. And that's the conclusion that Krosky came to as well. I think the overall take is Amanda wasn't complicit in any of this. She wasn't itching to go with them. But at the same time, she didn't want to stay on that property, didn't want to deal with the aftermath. And she and Zach had some history. So, you know, the, the least worst option. So keep going. What happened next? Settler's now in a verbal confrontation with Kane, uh, with Cricket, and I think Zach said Wells was there in that confrontation. You have at least those three circling around Settler. And then Kane, unprovoked, attacks Settler from behind, hits him in the head with a hatchet. Once Settler starts to get overwhelmed and falls back into the engine room, it's Kane and Cricket doing the damage. It's an intimate, bloody, vicious, rolling around, fighting. And then it's Kane over top of Settler, and Kane puts a knife into his neck. this point in time, I think Zach described himself standing back kind of in the shadows, but able to kind of see everything there. Zach just stands back and watches? I'm not sure this makes sense. He seemed just as angry with Settler as anybody else. Maybe more so. Then there's what Cricket told me when he called from prison. And next thing I know, I see an axe come out from behind me, upside down, hits Jeff on the head and knocks him out. So who was holding the axe? That would have been Zach Wooster. So according to Cricket, it was Zach wielding the hatchet. Can you just tell me why you guys came to the conclusion that Kane had both a hatchet and a knife in that situation? I mean, it's pretty standard in the weed community. You know, you've always got you know, a pocket knife, a, a holstered or sheath knife on your hip. Like, 
you're using it for whatever multiple purposes throughout the day. So it wouldn't even be a stretch of the imagination to say that I have one weapon in one hand and I also have another weapon on my hip or in my pocket. So Krosky's theory is that Kane hits Jeff with the hatchet and then pulls a knife from his pocket or a sheath and stabs him. Cricket says Zach swung the hatchet, but he was also high and drunk when this all happened. By the end of the plea negotiations, Kane agrees to admit that he swung the hatchet against Jeff. In his sentencing statement, it says he was defending Cricket because Jeff attacked them first. But in the end, Kane never admits to cutting Jeff's throat. In fact, in the court record, no one ever takes responsibility for that final blow, even though Krosky is sure that Kane did it. So after the business with the knife, the others move in and start moving the, the totes, correct? Right. You've got half of the crew moving marijuana out of the shed. Giggles is probably helping load at this point in time. You've got Amanda with her kid now back by her car. Zach's over there comforting her. He loads up some of her stuff. He loads up some of his stuff out of one of the campers where he was staying. And they head back to the cottages. And let's talk about Kane because I've been trying to figure out what his deal is. Kane just disappeared. He's not loading stuff. He doesn't even care about the marijuana. He wanders down the hill, which is is quite a walk. And now he's hitchhiking down to Mexico. He didn't go back to the cottages and say, okay, well, what's my cut? You know, where's my money? Like, none of that matters to him anymore. To hear about the final moments of Jeff and what Kane did to him, you know, face-to-face, kneeling over a guy, like, that takes a detached kind of person to be able to do that to another human being who, who never physically did you wrong. That seems pretty psychotic to me. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Are they still assaulting him? Uh, they're still assaulting him. Jesse was punching and kicking him. You might remember this conversation from Zach's walkthrough with the police. He accuses Jesse Wells of attacking Jeff. But Jesse insists he never went up the hill, that he waited at the gate to Jeff's farm and left when he became suspicious that something bad was happening. I hopped in my car and beat feet back to the cottages. 
And when I got back to the cottages, I parked in my usual parking spot. I got out. I went inside. And Jesse says this part of his story should be easy to confirm because it was all caught on video by a security camera at the cottage's motel pointing at the parking lot. You know, it was one car showing up with a group of people piling out and then another car showing up a little bit delayed and then more people piling out. And we had seen that in the surveillance video. Jesse had a room there. The group kind of congregated outside of his room. So you saw Jesse's car pull in to the cottage's parking lot and multiple people got out. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember if it was two or five, but there were two cars that came back with people from the hill. And then what ended up happening? That tape got lost or something? What was the story with that? Yeah, I and that was totally my fault. You know, we finally got a hold of the manager and got that evidence and put it on my USB drive like I've done, you know, dozens of other times. And then come back in the next day to type reports and can't find it. I didn't do anybody any favors by misplacing it and and losing it, being irresponsible with it, but I really hurt our case more than I did anything else. So I wish I had an explanation of how it happened or what I did, but uh, it was just carelessness. It's just interesting to me because Jesse says he never went up there and that you guys didn't have anything on him. How, how would you respond to that? I'm not sure exactly how much Jesse was involved in that confrontation aspect of it, but I don't recall having any doubts that he was at the top of the hill. In Jesse's interview, he was walking us through things, and he was at the bottom of the hill, and then he'd say something, and it was like, well, you couldn't have seen that if you were on the top of the hill, so we'd kind of readdress it softly, and oh, no, no, no that's just what somebody told me. But I remember it was like three or four iterations into him going through and then us kind of, hey, rewind me a bit, walk me through this again. And in that final part of the conversation, like fear washed over him uh, and then just shut down. Right before he shut down was was him at the top of the hill, at, at by his own words, you know, seeing things start to unfold and being like, oh, shit. Here's the only part of Jesse's interrogation I've heard that sounds like what Krosky might be talking about. Did you see anything? Kane bragged about braining him. That's the only thing I know. And that cricket guy had a personal vendetta. And in all likelihood, how I've put it together in my head is that a fight broke out. I fucking don't know how this happened. I do know how this happened. Fucking, fucking drugs and trauma. It really what caused all this for everyone involved. <laughs> and I just feel guilty by association, you know, like... <laughs> if you're not the person that did this, you need to tell me where you were in the room, because what do you think is going to happen when this comes I'm just telling you, up? I never entered any dwelling. Uh, that's 100%. I never entered a dwelling. You were not where you said you were at the gate, okay? We've talked to everybody about this. You're you're withholding a portion of time. And the emotionality you have is consistent with someone that saw something horrible and was involved in something horrible. Man, I got so scared, dude. I, I bet. That sounds really scary, man. The whole thing. I didn't, dude. I didn't know. 
So scared. I didn't know. What? I didn't know. I got him so scared. I don't want to die. What'd you see, Jesse? I don't know. I don't know what I saw. I know I couldn't do anything to stop it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Another question I wanted to resolve about the case came from Jeff's father. Why were Michael Caine and Cricket, the guys believed to have stabbed Jeff and cut his throat, in prison for manslaughter and not murder? Like, why did these guys get plea deals in the first place? We had built the case on the premise of the felony murder rule. Krosky explained that the felony murder rule was a law that allowed prosecutors to charge all parties involved in a felony with murder, regardless of whether they actually killed someone. For example, if someone walks into a bank with a gun and shoots the teller, then jumps in a getaway car and speeds off, the getaway driver could be convicted of murder, even if they didn't shoot anyone. The initial plan was to use the felony murder rule as leverage to force Zach and Giggles to testify against Kane and Cricket. We had all those plea deals in place with Wooster and Giggles, and then Governor Brown changed the law. Former California Governor Jerry Brown set new limits on the felony murder rule. Once we lost the threat to the other suspects that they would be subject to the felony murder rule, then they have no reason to cooperate and testify against Kane and Cricket. So if you guys had gone to trial with this, what was your fear? Well, we wouldn't have anyone to testify. Maybe. But there were also problems with the investigation. There was that security camera footage from the cottages that Krosky lost. And there was something else the cops may have screwed up. Do you remember what color the hair was that was found in Jeff's hand? Yeah. Whose hair is in his hands? Most likely Kane's. This is Zach and Espinosa during the crime scene walkthrough from episode five. Why do you say that? What color was it? Uh, blondish brown, something that like that. That would be Kane's. 
canes? Yeah, 100%. We thought it was red, like a dark red and like a blood-stained red, uh, but that could easily be brown or light brown or blonde or any variations. Um, I mean, you know, Jeff had dark hair. Don't think he'd be pulling out his own hair. It was a smoking gun, a clump of hair Jeff tore from the head of his attacker just before he was killed. But when the detectives sent this hair off to the forensics lab, the results showed a positive match, not for Michael Caine, not for Cricket, but Jeff Settler. One explanation is that the hair from Jeff's hand was soaked in his own blood, and the lab may not have properly rinsed off the hair sample before it was tested. And the reason I know this is because I talked to an anonymous source with insider knowledge of the case. The district attorney decided that the best they could get against Kane and Cricket was manslaughter. You know, what's your take on that? Do you think that this was a murder? Did they deserve the murder charges? Um, Kane and Cricket absolutely should have gotten murder one and should be doing... Uh, 25 to life. So it's a, in my opinion, a travesty that they didn't get more. And, um, you know, even probably overkill on, on some of the other guys. What about Jeff's and his family? Do you think justice was done there? No, it was definitely unfair. Cricket, Jesse, Kane, Giggles, all of them paid a steep price for their parts in this crime. But what about Zach? He's the one I followed out here. He's the one I want to believe was innocent. He paid a smaller price than Kane and Cricket. But after everything I've learned, the planning, the recruiting, the way he consistently puts himself outside the violence, pointing the finger at Jesse by saying he was punching and kicking Settler, and he wouldn't even talk to me for the story. At this point, I'm really not sure how to feel about Zach. So I asked Detective Krosky. Did you get the sense that Zach was telling the truth about this? I think he hid details in the beginning. Like anybody in those situations, uh, he definitely shaded his conversations towards limiting or minimizing his um, responsibility and guilt. But I think as the interviews progressed, we got more and more truth and saw more of what was truly bubbling up within the group, what was truly his direction and desire, that he was the ringleader by and large and and instigating the, hey, let's go have our day with, with Settler. He's about the only one that realizes, hey, I screwed up, this should not have happened, and what do I need to do to make it better? And he was the only one that stepped up and and tried to make any of this right. At the end of the day, taking it all in, I I don't think he wanted to kill Jeff that night. I I think he wanted to go up there, threaten him, punch him in the face a few times if he needs to, but get what he felt he was owed and get out of there, move on to something else. I do believe Zach, he never felt like it was going to be that, you know, a, a vicious murder. I never thought I'd say this, but I think the cop is right. Zach may have been angry and talked about killing Jeff, and he may have been the driving force behind the plan. If I've learned anything about Zach, 
It's that he is stubborn and he's charismatic enough to convince people to go along with him. Even the cops seem to have based their whole case on Zack's story. And if Zack had just cut his losses and was willing to move on, Jeff Settler may still be alive. But in the end, I do believe Zack when he says he did not plan for Jeff to die. At this point, I was tempted to hang up with Krosky, but there was one more thing I just couldn't get out of my head. One final lingering mystery that I thought he might be able to help me solve. Another thing I wanted to ask about was the section of the interviews where they started describing like the green light to go up there and get what's ours. Um, You recall this? Yep. That's next time on the final episode of the Emerald Triangle. Crooked City, The Emerald Triangle is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Novel and Sony Music Entertainment. The series is written and reported by me, Sam Anderson. Our senior producer is Joe Wheeler. Our producers are Alexa Burke, Lee Meyer, and Zach St. Louis. Story editing by Mark Smerling and Austin Mitchell. Our assistant producer is Sasha Baker, with additional research by Ivan Devoin. Scott Curtis and Sheree Houston are our production managers. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. Additional research by Lily Koch. Mixing and sound design by David Smith, Daniel Kempson, and John Scott. Our title track and additional tracks are composed and produced by Robert Quijano and Christopher Rose, with additional production by Nicholas Alexander. It was engineered by Peter Oviat and recorded at Moonflower Sound Studio in Taos, New Mexico. Additional music from Marmoset and Epidemic Sound. Development by Willard Foxton with special thanks to Indira Burney, Max O'Brien, Sean Glynn, and Matt O'Mara. Also, special thanks to the amazing studio musicians and Moonflower Sounds. Continue the conversation with us by tweeting at Emerald Triangle Pod. If you've enjoyed the Emerald Triangle, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.